This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week, two friendly library patrons and a professional librarian, Paul Jaisley. Hello, humanoids. And Tia Vasilio. Hello. And for this episode of I Read Comic Books, we have a very special guest, the one and only Amy Wright. Amy, welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show, I should say. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk comics and everything with you today, but I guess for the folks at home who maybe don't know who you are, could you give us a little brief bio about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a professional librarian, though currently I am on a library sabbatical and I'm doing my PhD in history, researching the history of comic censorship. But for a very long time, and still now, I have been involved with the American Library Association Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable. Long name, but basically comics uh, involved with comics librarianship, and I actually served as the first president of the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable. Amazing. Amazing. I think that's that's how we met with you years and years ago. Way back, it was at a con. We ran into each other and we were like, holy smoke, someone who's actually on the front lines of like comic book stuff in libraries, which everybody was very excited about. So super glad we were able to have you come back to the show. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess let's just let's just dive right into things. I guess we're going to talk about comic books that we've read recently. So um, I got to ask these two legally mandated, mandated questions, which is how have you been? How have comic books been? Uh, Paul, let's start with you. Mike, I've been great. Um, it is basically full-blown summer here in West Michigan. For those that are waiting for the West Michigan Weather Report, we are upper 60s, beautiful sunshine today, uh, great weather to walk to someplace to sit inside and read comics, which is what I did yesterday. Nice. Uh, so I read a couple things, and a couple things stood out to me that I want to talk about here on the show. Number one was Deep Cuts Number 1. This is a new miniseries from Image Comics, written by Kyle Higgins and Joe Clark. Art by Danilo Beiruth, uh, colors by Igor Monti, and letters by the one and only Hassan Atsmane Alau. Uh, this is a miniseries that's all about jazz music in the early, uh, well, 1917. That's when the, the story takes place, back down in New Orleans. Follows the young clarinet player named Charles Stewart, who is looking to make a big break into the music scene there in New Orleans in the you know early part of the jazz scene that's, that's bringing up at the time. And he joins up with a hotshot trumpet player named Jack Cartier. Uh, this book, uh, it's so interesting. Like, I really love books that try to capture the emotions and feelings of musicians. It's very difficult to do to portray music on a comic book page. And I think this book does a really good job. It captures the spirit and tone of New Orleans at the time. Um, it probably helps that Joe Clark, the, one of the co-writers, is a musician himself. He's a composer. Oh, nice. Uh, so th- I think they get a good sense of like how to talk about music and show it without feeling like you know it doesn't feel static it doesn't feel like um it's very natural you know the way that musicians talk about it to each other it feels like you're reading something that a musician actually wrote and is uh, involved in um i really like the way that the story it does help that it's a double size oversized issue you get a lot of background information about all the characters here but again it never feels like you're getting a big exposition exposition dump uh, all the interactions with the characters kind of like build up the story about Charles Stewart. He's a young boy whose father died when he was very young. His father a musician, so he's trying to follow in his father's footsteps. And uh, he gets a job with Jack Cartier. They start playing musician, playing music at a um, at a brothel. And uh, Charles Stewart's very religious grandmother is not very happy about that. Uh, but you get a really rich sense of the music scene there in the the brothel. You get a sense of the characters, the relationship to each other, the way that the musician who takes Charles under his wing might not be everything he claims to be, might be kind of a uh, um, a hustler. And I like the way that the the story kind of brings you along with that without actually making it super explicit, without you know 
telling you everything up front. Like you get the interactions and the histories with the characters through their conversations. And it, again, it does help that the artwork shows music in a very sort of like lively way. Um, overall, I really enjoyed this book a lot. I'm kind of excited to see where the story goes from here. And I think what's funny is like, because Joe Clark is a musician, like the back matter, you get a little, um, basically a piece of like sheet music and like, I can't read music. I have no idea what's happening here, but it looks great, right? You get a new original <laughs> piece of music by a musician, a contemporary jazz musician writing a piece. So I guess if you do read music, you can kind of like look at that and see what it sounds like. I hope mm-hmm. at some point somebody actually records some of this stuff so I know what exactly is happening here. Uh, but overall, it's a really, really beautiful comic, a nice page, a nice collection. And uh, gotcha. um, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see where that story goes. Yeah, that sounds fun. My my only question for you, Paul, is how does this tie into the massive or the radiant the massive verse? Sorry, the radiant black verse or whatever that Kyle Higgins has. <laughs> Again, the, this is only the first issue. There's a lot of story to tell. At some point, That's, you know, radiant yeah. black might show up. So, right, okay, perfect, perfect. Well, <laughs> that's great. Well, Tia, let's let's jump over to you. How have you been? How have comic books been? Hi. So a little a little bit sad this past week. Um, and I learned that the owner operator of the only local comic shop that has ever felt like my local comic shop, um, Earthworld Comics, um, I learned that JC Glenmeyer, uh, who ran it for 35 years, owned and operated, uh, he passed away last week, um, which mm. is extremely sad. And uh I would say that comic books lost a superhero. And um, so I've just been, you know, sort of nostalgic, I guess, reminiscing about how important that shop was to me um, when I was up in the Albany area and didn't really know anyone, didn't have any friends. The shop would have ladies nights and JC would be the bouncer and like, you know, keep everybody mm. safe, like, you know, keep everybody safe and happy. There'd be snacks, like only women staff would be working. We'd have uh, games and I don't know. It just like he really created a wonderful community in that, in that shop. So um, if you are in the area, if you know Earthworld, I think they're doing um, like a public memorial next Sunday on the 21st at uh, McGeary's Irish Pub. But if you don't and you're just thinking like, oh, that's, you know, that's sad. Stop by your local comic shop. Let them know you appreciate them because I I would say, uh, you know, they do it out of out of love for comics, right? Like it's a hard job. So yeah. Yeah, let, let them know you appreciate them. And so um, not on purpose. And in fact, uh, I was thinking the last show I was on a few weeks ago was about death. And mm-hmm. I don't know why I didn't read this book for that episode. But since I'm just on the topic of I can make anything about death, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tia. <laughs> Uh, we always, I can always bring it back to that. So I read I, Two Graves Number Six. I've, if people have been listening to the to the show this year, my episodes, you know that this was a series I was actually really excited about, um, and have been uh, like following very excitedly. I love how kind of ambiguous some parts of the story are. I love how different elements of like the lettering and the artwork really tell the story. It's a super simple story, right? There's um, a, a young woman who is traveling across the country to 
put her mother's ashes to rest in the ocean and she's traveling with this strange entity who like maybe is a reaper and there's he's got this mysterious mark on his neck and they're kind of running from these other reapers and um so I uh, this is the final issue in the series. So we get some I'm I'm going to be vague about the like details of the plot cuz I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I think you should really read this series, but I will say I love the way death is represented here as an entity. Like the artwork is definitely giving sort of like Slenderman, Hatman, Shadow Man um which have you guys seen this? Like, I can't take Benadryl because I owe the Hat Man money thing on the internet. <laughs> I, I have, I have seen this. <laughs> um, it, it, it is. It strikes a chord in like a very small portion of fear in my brain yeah. that I will one day wake up to something standing in my room in the middle of the night. But it's also very funny. <laughs> it's so creepy pasta, right? Like, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, so. But like the the depiction of this entity and also the lettering for the way that this entity is, it's so, so good. Edidia Bidikar does the lettering for this book. It's so good. Like you can mm. see mm. this entity's voice echoing, which is just mm-hmm. amazing. And so Amelia, the young woman, had just said like a page or two before the entity appears that she thought death was empty, but this is a darkness that's alive. And I really like that subtle contradiction between her making that observation, but then the like voice just echoing like it's in this empty place. And um, yeah, so thematically, I think this is a really cool story about the, like the tension between feeling powerful and like taking charge of your own destiny but also embracing inevitability and kind of knowing where the difference is or maybe even like exploring the power in embracing inevitability if that makes sense Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. so some profound stuff going on and also it's a story about love and especially love that can't be reciprocated with in different ways like maybe the person is dead maybe the person just like can't exist in the same place with you at the same time and so like how do you embrace that inevitability and then also no spoilers just a question i'll put to the group how soon is too soon to reuse mythology from other recent popular series like you're like if there's a i guess thor is the weird exception here right but are you talking about like characters that may have showed up from like the Greek myth mythos, but like not normally portrayed in like major mainstream comics. And then someone else also doing a story about like Greek characters or something like that. Sort of. I mean, like obviously <laughs> no one owns mythology and there no two ways that they are woven into a story are, are going to be exactly the same. But mm-hmm. it just, to me, it, like, I don't know if I would, you, you can't help what, like cultural references get attached to certain things. And so if I'm trying to create an original book, I'm not sure I would want to use character names or like reference mythology that I know for a, a big segment of my likely demo- reading demographic is going to immediately reference some other series. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It that's a tough question, I think, because like obviously no one owns mythology. Like you can't help it. Right. But I mean, and then there's just some folks that are just like, give me more Greek mythology stories. I don't <laughs> care who you are, just give me more of that. Maybe. It's like okay. I mean, Lore Olympus is like proof of that, right? 
<laughs> that like people are clamoring for that, I guess, and they will hmm. read this to the end of time. Um, I don't know. But that's a that's an interesting, interesting question, regardless. Yeah. Um, well, Amy, what about you? How have you been? Um, how have comic books been? What have you been reading? Um, so I am entering, I guess, almost in my third year of my PhD. So um, a lot of the reading I've been doing is very historical <laughs> with comics. Uh-huh. Um, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have been revisiting a lot of origin stories of classic superheroes, especially Captain America. Um, so nice. I love that Penguin Classics has reissued um, a whole bunch of um, Marvel. So they have Amazing Spider-Man, Black Panther, Captain America that they've reissued in Penguin Classic edition. So you can get them full color um, in paperbacks or even a really nice, you know, fantastic coffee table version um so this one Mm -hmm. it is edited by ben saunders who i know was recently on your show um and ben of course was a curator for the marvel exhibit that made the rounds in the past few years and this one for captain america also has um a foreword from jean lewin yang you know very famous cartoonist but of course fantastically with american born chinese coming out this month Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've been really liking just what's nice about this um, collected edition is that you get to read, of course, um, the issues as they came out, but it's an edited, you know, introduction to the character and all the different iterations of Captain America and also to have the feedback from folks like Ben Saunders and Jean Yang about how they perceived Captain America and even just to get more about the origin stories. for me, <laughs> totally, you know, if you will, dorkily, but one of the things I think is really important to point out is that, like, Captain America came out before the U.S. had actually joined World War II, and I think that's something that's not talked about enough, and, you know, mm. I think maybe within comics, you know, inside baseball, like, we do talk a lot about, you know, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby and their personal backgrounds and what they brought to the character, but... I don't think enough of people outside of comics know that like here are, you know, Jewish Americans talking about the fact that the U.S. has not joined the war effort. The U.S., like a lot of countries, you know, has not been amenable to the plight of um, Jewish uh, refugees that were trying to, you know, find homes going into like 1938, 1939. So um, also, you know, Captain America is fantastic. (laughs) So, so, I mean, there there are so many reasons um, to know and love it. So I've been really enjoying revisiting those, you know, while I'm also sifting through hundreds hundreds of books um, pulling together my PhD research proposal, which I was working on right before we logged on. So (laughs) <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah uh, well that i mean but it sounds like you know at least at least at the end of the day you get to read some entertaining comics as part of right. this work right <laughs> oh 100 percent, and i get to be like yeah. oh this is why you should care about captain america because i will soon have my phd mm-hmm. in history <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's my takeaway <laughs> no that's awesome that's awesome yeah huh. I, i'm i'm looking forward to getting like a signed document from you that says like you should love captain america signed dr right like <laughs> <laughs> I, I know i mean um um i don't know if uh, he's ever guested on your show but matthew no who is the outgoing uh, former president for the graphic novel and comics roundtable he does a lot of work mm. within graphic medicine Um, and was one of the founders of a lot of the graphic medicine collectives. But with his last name, no. And, you know, we're like, man, one day we're going to be Dr. Wright and Dr. No, like doctors of of comics librarianship, right? I love it. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) 
Uh, well, let me let me jump in. I guess for me, I, I have not been reading comic books because I have been fully immersed in The Legend of Zelda. Um, for those of you who are who maybe have been living under a rock, I don't know, maybe you didn't know this, but a new new Legend of Zelda game came out, The Tears of the Kingdom. And uh, Friday, I picked up the game at 11 a.m., sat down, turned my switch on, and I've been playing it almost nonstop since then. And it is Sunday at 3.30. I was literally playing this morning before the show like i forced myself to read some comic books because i knew i had to do that this week um but uh yeah it's been nonstop zelda and as soon as we finish this show i'm kicking that switch back on um to do that so uh, i don't know if any of you were you know had this recent obsession but um i think i've already put like 20 hours into this game since it came out on friday um but i recommend it it's a lot of fun um clearly it's it's an addiction it's a problem but i read uh strange academy finals number six uh this is by scotty young and umberto ramos um we get an end of this strange academy series if anyone has not been reading this the the gist of it is there's this magic school in louisiana founded by dr voodoo and he has basically recruited all of the magic adults in the Marvel Universe to bring young and up and coming teenagers and kids who have magical abilities to basically learn how to use them. It's very I don't want to say Harry Potter because it's not at all. It just happens to be a magic school. But, you know, you get the tropes of like, oh, here are the cool kids and here are the kids that learned how to use magic from their parents. And this person has a magic jacket. Are they actually a magic user? Um, so you get all the, you know, the fun stuff that you get, you know, when you get when you put a bunch of teenage together in school. Um, and Scotty Young does a fantastic job of giving each and every one of the main characters like a distinct voice and everything where you can latch on to a character and learn to love them as the series goes on um, or learn to hate them as the series goes on, which is kind of how this series ends um, with a two characters that you wouldn't have think that you'd love and hate have switched sides. Um, one becomes the good guy, one becomes the bad guy. And uh, there's this kind of ultimate showdown. And uh, there's a tearjerker moment. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good round out for this all ages book. I, th- according to the editor at the end of this series, they said this isn't the end, but we'll see. This kind of feels like the end of Runaways, where it's like, oh, the Runaways are, aren't gone. They're still going to exist in the Marvel Universe. And then we get one Runaways book every year just to tie into the most recent event um, until Rainbow Rowell showed up and then reinvigorated the entire um, line. But I don't know. We'll see if Scotty Young and Umberto Ramos come back to do more in the future. But um, I guess it's it's nice to get some of Ramos's art where he's not forced or he he was probably forced to not draw teenager teenage girls with two inch miniskirts for a change because that's all he did when he drew the X-Men. And it was a little unsettling. Um, so it was nice to like see him put a lot of effort into a book and have it look really pretty and not have to feel weird about it. So, um, yeah, that's what I was reading. <laughs> um but uh paul what about you i know you've got one other book and i've got i've got two other books sure. because of course i do but um yeah what else did you read uh the other book i uh, read recently wanted to talk about on the show i raved about the first issue a couple weeks ago but it is unstoppable doom patrol number two written by dennis culver art by chris burnham colors by brian reber and letters by pat brousseau uh mike are you reading this series have you picked this up i have not should i okay uh yes because <laughs> i don't mean this as a slight this feels like a better version of what I want from X-Men comics. I don't know. There's something My... about this current, okay. <laughs> this, this current Doom Patrol status quo is very X-Men. The team is tracking down, you know, these new metahumans that are popping up in the DC universe. They're bringing them into the fold, giving them a place to be comfortable. It is very much the uh, classic Chris Claremont X-Men like status quo, but it's the Doom Patrol. Okay. And for me, 
that's very much what I want. So, um, and this, I don't want to spoil anything. There is a very, very specific X-Men reference in this issue that actually made me laugh out loud when I realized what was happening. So I kind of want you to read this at some point to see if you have the same reaction. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll fire up that DC Universe Infinite yeah. Extreme Ultimate, whatever it's called, um, yeah. and give it a read. <laughs> it's very fun. So again, in this issue, again, the team tracks down a, um, a new metahuman named Worm. Uh, they bring them to the Doom Patrol headquarters. And I love that this series somehow is able to kind of bring in all the different versions of the Doom Patrol. So you not only get references to the Morrison Doom Patrol, you get references to the previous version of Doom Patrol that Paul Kupperberg was doing before Morrison took over. Uh, so like the headquarters for the Doom Patrol is in Kansas, which is where like that original pre-Morrison Doom Patrol took place. You get Chris Burnham doing a beautiful... Uh, headquarters establishing shot double page spread where you see like the cross section of the building all the different floors it, it is like the x-men training facility you know there nice. is a danger basically a quote-unquote danger room where they're all training in um and there's references to other past characters there's a great moment where cliff a uh, steel robot man goes to visit the grave of dorothy spinner who is a character from the doom patrol in the 90, 80s and 90s mm. um and we get a little more background of what the status of the, the team is it turns out I thought the first issue that basically uh, Jane had taken over as the chief. That's still the case. The chief is one of Jane's personalities, but Niles Calder is still around. Like he's overseeing the the larger sort of like um, structural, uh, economic, and political aspect of the Doom Patrol. Whereas the chief, one of Jane's personalities. Uh, is kind of managing the day to day operations of the Doom Patrol. You get to see their interactions, which is really fascinating because you know uh jane's personalities are very distinct and like they don't always get along with other people so it's it's kind of fun to see that power dynamic playing out especially to see niles calder like not being <laughs> calling all the shots um hmm. interesting you know, so yeah yeah so i think overall this series is kind of like i was always skeptical about the series because i think the doom patrol is something that means a lot to me again mike you and i read all of the morrison doom patrol that's a very very important series for me personally and it's always kind of weird to see someone kind of take over those characters and i'm not sure they're going to treat them the way i want them to be treated so far uh dennis culver and chris burnham are doing an amazing job i really love the way they're able to kind of call all of the doom patrol history over the decades into this book and make it feel unique and special and really again like make that team feel distinct and make it give them a new status quo where they actually have a mission that they're they're accomplishing um there is a sort of uh suicide squad tie in here again i don't want to give too many spoilers about this book because i love it so much i want people to experience it on their own uh but i think they're setting up a big cliffhanger already in the second issue of this miniseries and i cannot wait to see where they go from here yeah it sounds it sounds great i have to I'll have to check this out because uh I don't know if you're saying it feels like X-Men vibes, you know, I'm down at least to, to give <laughs> exactly. it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think like high I, it, here's the thing about this, Paul. It's you're weird yeah. me out here. You're like, Oh, it's, it feels like <laughs> X-Men, but then you said it feels like Claremont X-Men and you know how I feel oh, about Chris Claremont. That's, so like, okay. yeah, we're going to see how the, we're at this point. It's a challenge. I have to do it. So I'm going to report <laughs> back for the next time you're on the show. I'll have read at least issue one, maybe issue two. Uh -huh. We'll see. Um, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> and again, it's strange because like I, I, I've read enough of the Claremont X-Men and read other X-Men where it's like I have an idea yeah, what yeah, yeah. I want from the X-Men. And this is like this is what I want from X-Men comics. And by and large, X-Men comics don't give me what I want from X-Men comics. So, OK, this is the, the best yeah. version of it, you know.
this is interesting. Now I don't know how to read anything because even Danny's jumping in the chat and saying I should read this. So, okay, okay, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. Um, or really quick, then I guess before we get into the top of our pile, um, I I should have done said this first. I mean, it just I was sticking to the brand. Um, I was I'm obsessed with Legend of Zelda right now, so I decided let's try these Legend of Zelda manga books that are out there. And so I read the first chapter of two different books just to get a sampling. Um, I read the Legend of Zelda Four Swords Chapter One. Um, both of these are by Akira Himikawa. Four Swords, and then I read the first chapter of uh, the Ocarina of Time book as well. So the Four Swords book is really hokey. It's super contrived to get into the story of, all right, we need Link to go save Zelda, and there needs to be four of him somehow. And if you do, if you guys don't know anything about Zelda, that's fine, uh, or Legend of Zelda, that's fine. Like Ultimately, they made a game where there's four Links. Um, there's a red one, there's a blue one, there's a, the traditional green one, and then there's a purple one. And Xander is editing this. Um, he's probably going to like pull all of the hair out of my head um, when he hears me say this. But like they're supposed to represent like all the various pieces of the Triforce, including a mysterious missing fourth one. Um, Xander literally gave like a 25 minute presentation about like how all of the games have led up to this Tears of the Kingdom game. Um, anyways, Four Swords is weird. It's hokey. They split Link into four piece people by pulling a sword out of a stone, and then he has to go save Zelda. And each of the little Links have their own different personality traits. Like one's angry and one's kind, and the other one is adventurous and the other one is scared because, of course. Um, so it's really goofy. Probably not going to read more. However, the Ocarina of Time like manga book that they put out, um, this is less contrived because. Uh, I mean, and I say that like roughly because honestly, it's just it's a Legend of Zelda game. Like the plots are very, very, very thin. They're just a reason for you to go into dungeons and fight monsters and yada, yada. But the Ocarina of Time game actually has like a pretty decent story where you're this kid link. You wake up in the forest where you've grown up your whole life. You don't know who your parents are. You have to go fight a monster that has taken over the giant talking tree that's at the center of town. And you kind of just have to accept that that's the way that the world works here. And then it turns out you're the hero of time. You're the person that's supposed to help save the world after Princess Zelda, who's supposed to be the, the reincarnation of like a goddess, um, has been captured by Ganon, this super evil monster man. Um, so, yeah, the manga actually reads and it, it, it turns out it's actually good to read. So, um, yeah, I figured I'd try that wow. stuff after it's been like sitting out there on the Internet for forever. But uh, yeah, anyways. <laughs> got to stay on brand this week because I'm going to go back and only play video games for the rest of the week. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, I don't know. I'm, I feel like if you have no idea what legend of Zelda is, everything that I just said is a bunch of gibberish and that's totally fine. That, yep. 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 Okay. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, let's move on. Let's talk about comics that are the top of our pile books that we're looking forward to reading, whether they're new or old or just something that's been sitting on your shelf for forever. So Tia, let's, let's go back to you. What's on the top of your pile. Well, everyone knows um, I'm a big fan of Simon Hanselman and the like mega hex world. And there's mm -hmm. going to be another book coming out in, I think, August 1st from Fantagraphics, Werewolf Jones yes. and Sons Deluxe Summer Fun Annual. Yeah! Uh, Simon Hanselman and Josh Pettinger, <laughs> Pettinger are um, both credited. So like, okay, I just... Werewolf Jones is probably the most disgusting character in this series, I would say, or mm -hmm. like the most just like filthy, unhinged character. And I think that part of the reason is because he's a dad and he has the two sons. And so it's like it's one thing to be just like an absolute disgusting dirtbag if you're just like, you know, some single person hanging out with your friends. But to like to make it 
to, to put that on a character who's actually a parent, I think just like amplifies how completely chaotic and unhinged these characters are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but I love it, and I lo- I can't wait to see how like horrific this book is in the best right. way. <laughs> it's one thing to do a book that features werewolf jones right but it's a different thing to do a book that stars werewolf jones i think if if you know anything about the megan mock series uh yeah i i can't imagine what unhinged insanity is going to come out of that book um if only because like like, yeah like it's also i think a great pick for this uh episode topic because you know a lot of the like censorship of comics is like because won't someone think of the children and (laughs) this is just like no (laughs) no we're gonna fuck those kids up (laughs) fuck them kids if if someone is giving megan mog comics to children i think that we should actually be calling them into question about it because like (laughs) children should not be reading these books right like my crap in pro censorship in comics wait wait wait, no no no, hold on wait 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 Oh man, you know it's funny. I, I I got this confused with uh the zine that Simon Hanselman put out. I think it that it's called uh, "You Will Own Nothing and You Will Be Happy," which is like a black and white book uh-huh. that they're they're they did like a limited print of, and they're probably going to collect it later because that's what Hanselman seems to do. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that there's like more Megan Mog stuff. And by the way, I am 100 very happy that you turned me onto this series way way back in the day, um, because I'm obsessed now, and it's it's all because of you. <laughs> take that how you will <laughs> i am i'm pleased to be of, of service in that way <laughs> <laughs> amazing well paul what about you what's on top of your pile well uh it's probably no surprise here this this book came actually came out last week but i haven't been to the shop yet to pick it up so as soon as i get my hands on it i'll be reading the best of 2008 volume three i've absolutely loved this series i raved about the first two volumes here on the show it is the introduction to the long-running british anthology series 2008 Every volume of this so far has been incredible. You get a classic dread story, you get a new dread dread story, as long as as well as some like classic 2080 uh other non-dread comics, which is always nice to see, since that's my main entry point to 2080 is Judge Dread. Uh for this particular volume, we get a new Judge Dread story called Ghosts, written by Michael Carroll, art by Mark Sexton. We also get one of my favorite Judge Dredd stories of all time, The Graveyard Shift by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Ron Smith. That story is incredible. That might be worth, if you're on the fence about this, buy this collection just for that story. It is so great. Uh, we also get, nice. some, again, some non-Judge Dredd stuff. Storming Heaven by Gordon Rennie and Fraser Irving. Pretty Always nice to see Fraser Irving artwork. And then Leviathan by Ian Eddington and Disraeli. Disraeli is an amazing artist. Again, did a lot of work for 2080. So again, I know I raved about this series enough, but I think they're doing an amazing job of just giving you so much great material. Like these, I'm always shocked just how many great comics are able to squeeze into these collections. The It's worth every penny if you get it physically or digitally. I think it's if you have any interest in 2080 or just want to read some interesting comics, obviously just dread, but also just some great sci-fi comics. These volumes are mm-hmm. worth every penny. Yeah, I really got to get my hands on these. On these. I, I've been putting it off, but I think now is the time, right? The time is now. If, especially if this book has one of your favorite dread <laughs> stories, because like yes. I feel like you have not led me down any wrong paths when it comes to like recommended dread stories. So like 
that's high praise right there, Paul. Yeah. I mean, the the graveyard shift really is a story where you get to see what it's like to live in Mega City One. It's it's one night in Mega City One, and you get to follow Dread and some other judges around what they're doing each night. And it kind of feels like the opening of the recent Dread movie. I say recent, it's over 10 years old at this point, but the 2012 mm-hmm. Dread movie, you get dropped into Mega City One and just kind of deal with it the overwhelming sort of chaos of it in this, that story feels like it was a huge inspiration for that film. Awesome. Amy, what about you? What's on the top of your pile this week? So I am preparing for, we're hosting a webinar through the graphic novel and comics Roundtable this upcoming Wednesday. It is the final webinar in a three part series that we've been running about dealing with bands and challenges with comic book titles. And we're actually very happy that we have Trung Lee Wynn joining us um, creator of the magic fish. And I am embarrassed that I read Magic Fish when it first came out in 2020, and it's one that I need to revisit, and I'm excited to revisit, um, given that Trung is joining us on the webinar on Wednesday. Um, What's been really nice about this title, we have seen it popping up on a few bands and challenge lists, because, of course, um, it's sort of described as semi-autobiographical um, about uh, a teenager who's wrestling how to come out um, to his mom, who's originally from Vietnam. And so it has popped up on some bands and challenge lists, but we've also seen it pop up on some awards lists too, which has been really nice. Like right now, it's actually um, a nominee for the Nutmeg Awards in Connecticut for a title for grades uh, 9 to 12. So it's nice that it's getting some other attention and not just um, mm-hmm. stuff that is less than op- opportune. Yeah, this this book super rules. I um I don't know. I feel like it's definitely one that I need to reread, probably, because I read it in 2020 as well, but I, I don't think I read it since it came out. Oh, totally. And we were talking earlier about mythology and, you know, how that is sort of interwoven with so many different stories. And that's actually something just when we were talking about mythology earlier in the conversation, I'm like, oh, I want to reread it, especially if with like an eye to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, we'll we'll have to get a link to that webinar. I don't know if you guys do recordings or whatever, but we'll have to grab a something and hopefully embed it in the show notes so that folks can check that out. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess before I get into my pick, we, as always, have folks hanging out with us on Discord, and uh, we've got some folks with their top of their pile picks. So Danny is going to be reading Disney Villains Maleficent number... Danny, you're reading Disney Villains Maleficent number one? Um, okay, I'll <laughs> leave you there. Um, Graham is reading Hell's Paradise... Jingo Kuraku by Yuji Kaku. And Paul is reading Top 10 by Alan Moore, Gene Ha, and Kyle Starks, um, which I don't know if that's because I mentioned Top 10 recently, but like, uh, yeah, I've got that big, thick compendium that's hanging out um, on my shelf of the co- collected Top 10. And I'm glad someone else is reading that series because it's very, very good. Um, but the book that I am looking forward to reading next is The Great Disappointment. This is by Box Brown, which is a collection of short comics by Brown covering a small smattering of nonfiction and autobio comics from 2011. Um, I'm really curious to see some of Box's early work, um, given that his style has, I think, become more solidified in the way that he draws now. Um, skimming through the book, it's it's very it's a very different artistic style. Uh, and I noticed that some of the uh, the stories inside kind of cover some more serious, like religious topics, which I've never seen Box tackle before. Um, and I, I looked this up a little bit. The title of the book is a reference to an incident that happened in 1844, where the Millerite movement was, uh, they reacted to this 
Baptist preacher named William Miller's proclamation that Jesus Christ would return to earth by 1844, which he called the second advent, and it didn't happen. And so there was this great disappointment. So if that kind of like sets where this book is going to be going coming from, um, I'm very interested to see where this, I think that's one of the stories as well as a couple of others. So um, should be interesting. One of the things I did, I will know is I also saw that there's like, I was flipping through the pages and there's this huge bo- page that just says Satan wins. <laughs> <laughs> um which i just want to print out and put on a wall because i i think that's so funny um so yeah looking forward to that um I, and finishing i think collecting all of the box brown books that i can get my hands on now on one nice shelf should be pretty cool nice yeah, yeah. um but I yeah i guess this was coming out enough to track that down well, it actually came out a while ago. So like I, as I was, okay. I, I don't, I don't know if folks at home know, but I was on an episode of the comics that we love uh, podcast and uh-huh. we talked about box Brown's uh, Tetris, the games people play. Um, and we kind of timed it with that movie coming out, the Tetris movie that came out. They're not related gotcha. by any means, but we were like, yeah, perfect timing. No. And is as part of that show, um, uh, I did a little bit of research and it, to, to make sure that I had some talking points for Box Brown, I realized that there was like four or five books of his that I didn't own. And I was like scrambling okay. on the internet to be like, I have to own all of these. My library must be complete. Uh, and yeah. then I, I got this one. <laughs> so Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll let you know what I think, Paul. Who knows? It might be utter rubbish, which is probably why neither of us had heard yeah. of it before. Um, right, right. But I know I've, he's got a new I've book seen... coming out soon about the history of uh, He-Man, which I'm very yeah. excited about. So. Yeah. yeah yeah it's it's about i think it's he-man and like how collectible toys destroyed people's childhoods or something like that <laughs> something like that yeah. you know really fun stuff but yeah let's uh let's take a quick break um when we come back we're going to talk more with amy about uh censorship and book bans and and book challenges and stuff in the library system so we'll be back in just a second Before we get into the topic for this week's show, I got a little housekeeping, um, switching things up on you folks. Um, I just want to remind everyone that you can follow us on the internet on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. We've got a Discord. We've got our Goodreads group. We've got our reading challenge that's going on. We've got a YouTube channel. All of those links are in the show notes to make sure to check those out. And we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast where you can get access to a better Batmobile, IRCB movie club, and literally over a hundred exclusive episodes of content just for our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast just wanted to throw a reminder out there but let's get into things we brought amy onto today's show to talk about censorship and book challenges in the comic book industry specifically in libraries amy you sent over a really cool article about preparing and addressing challenges for comics um in libraries i guess could you talk us through that a little bit and then maybe we can jump around with some other things well 100 so um, I left library land to go back to school in January 2019 to study historical comic book censorship, right? And I have to say at the time, I think a few folks, well, grad school in general, it's costly and takes a lot of time and people are like, hmm, good luck with that. Right. And, you know, fast mm-hmm. forward just, you know, about a year. And of course, um, I think the biggest headline was for um, mouse being pulled from Tennessee schools, you know, mm-hmm. and um, late... Uh, Gosh, yeah, well, this is what, 2000, we had heard that the challenges were kind of heating up through, you know, 2020, especially as um, with folks being at home with their kids. And then, yeah, mouse gets pulled um, fall 2020. 
also very notably, um, and it may not make, you know, um, everybody's radar because it's a kid's comic, but Jerry Craft's New Kid, which is the first graphic novel to win the Newbery Award for Excellence in Children's mm-hmm. Literature, mm-hmm. was pulled from a huge number of schools. Uh, Jerry Craft had school visits canceled. So and this is all that to say. Yeah. <laughs> and also just like a lovely human being. Yeah. So um, this is all that to say. Um, sorry, Mouse's uh, fall 2021. So um, this is all that to say in early 2022. Um, I had sort of been on a bit of a sabbatical from the library organization for about a year and a half while I finished my master's uh, thesis in history and I was starting my PhD, um, the graphic novel and comics roundtable is like, wow, your historical research on comic censorship is pretty useful now. Can you come back and start this new committee? So, hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> and um, so February 2022, uh, we started this new committee. It was originally struck as a short-term committee. We wanted to sort of respond in real time because you know, fall 2021 into winter 2022, we have a lot of schools are starting to reopen, libraries are starting to reopen. And um, I mean, challenging enough for everybody in public service working through COVID and then having to deal with an onslaught of scrutiny. And frankly, you know, in some cases threatening like educators and librarians about what they were buying and putting on the shelves. So uh, the committee started uh, February 2022. And one of the biggest things we wanted to do was just support people in real time in terms of if a challenge comes to your door with a comic book challenge, like what can you do before a challenge comes, during a challenge and afterwards. Um, One of the things that we were hearing from a lot of folks is that I think a lot of people talk about censorship in a vacuum. Nobody wants to be pro-censorship, but right. but few people maybe have had that experience or have really thought through what that looks like when somebody comes into your school or library and says, I don't think you should have gender queer on your shelves. So what we are finding especially is any schools or libraries that maybe had some preparedness, they had preparedness specifically for text only books. Um, They knew how to defend, for example, To Kill a Mockingbird or Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which are historically two of the most banned and challenged books, but Mm. really didn't have policy or protocol for talking about comics, um, explicitly talking about visuals in comics. So one of the things that has been happening and has continued to happen, um, so we had like more challenges last year than ever before, um, yeah, (laughs) Um, is people taking images from comic titles out of context. Um, Of course. Yeah, <laughs> they, they do so well with that. Um, and I think especially a title like Gender Queer by Maya Kobe, mm. you know, this was originally published as an adult title, you know, published by Oni. And it is a title that has gotten a lot of attention and it did win an ALA Alex Award, which is an award for adult titles that might have some applicability or relevance for teen audience. But it's not a teen title. I mean, it is published as an adult title. And Yet, I think what we're seeing is so many misperceptions still about comics, Um, especially with genderqueer. One of the things we've heard from some libraries is because it's published in full color, I think that's especially um, that perception that it should be for kids or somehow enticing to kids. Um, Mm -hmm. We had heard from one library uh, that it was almost like candy on the shelf. And, oh, my gosh, some child might pick this up and question their gender identity. First of all, like, that's cool. Like, that's why there's books (laughs) like there. there. Right. Yeah. yeah, So uh, we started, you know, very much as a short term committee. 
Um, we are now a standing committee. Um, last year, we actually had Maya Kobe join us for our panel during ALA Annual, which was actually held in Washington, D.C. It was one of the strangest experiences probably of my life. It was one of my first big trips post-COVID. Mm. And um, Maya Kobe is on the panel. And we had heard alerts that the panel was going to be protested, actually, from hmm. people who are attending the conference. Um, so presumably librarians, like library workers or people within publishing who had problems with this title. And uh, we didn't get any protests because the panel was on the same day that Roe v. Wade was overturned in Washington. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what timing, yeah. <laughs> right? <Holy> smokes. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was also, it was maybe doubly weird because I used that trip in Washington to um, do a research trip for my PhD. And I was actually um, at Library of Congress and their manuscript and archives uh, looking at Wortham's collection. So it was, um, wow. it was, it was wow. a weird moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, yeah. that's a, that's a joining of so many different things <laughs> and one time. Holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> I got COVID too. It was, it was a weird. Oh, yeah, definitely oh, not post-COVID, wow. right? Yeah. <laughs> Still yeah. very much current COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, this is all to say the, so the committee has been around for about a year and a half. And really the objective is to support frontline library workers mm. Um, have a little bit more information about what to do. Um, mm -hmm. Comics, so the American Library Association Office of Intellectual Freedom introduces um, every year in April, they'll release their list of top 10 uh, most banned and challenged titles. This year, they just released it. There are 13 titles because there's a few ties for the top spots. Jeepers. And um, yeah, Genderqueer again made the mm -hmm. top spot, but there's mm -hmm. a new addition, um, Mike Curato's Flamer. Um, which is, again, semi-autobiographical, um, based a little bit on Curato's experiences growing up, um, questioning their sexual identity, and also sort of being in an organization like the Boy Scouts. Um, like, where does that fit within traditional depictions of masculinity? So um, Flamer is now on the list. Um, but I think an important thing to point out is this list is not comprehensive. Um, the Office of Intellectual Freedom estimates that about 85% of all challenges go unreported. So there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of stuff being pulled off the shelf or maybe not purchased for shelves that we actually aren't aware of. And a lot of that stuff we know uh, historically and currently tends to be visual materials. So whether it's picture books or comics and especially visual materials that are either explicitly written for children or perceived to be intended for children. So right. um, historically, you know, Watchmen has made the list because back in the early days of libraries, um, a lot of folks had all ages comic sections and well, you can imagine mm -hmm. how that went. <laughs> the issue it, of, it, of visual content versus prose content and whether or not something might be challenged or restricted um, if the, you know, offending material is depicted in a drawing versus text is a really interesting one to me as an art historian, um, mm -hmm. because I feel like as a culture, we spend a lot of time in our education systems teaching people like critical analysis of text. Like that's what school pretty much is. And you don't get any visual analysis uh, like of images. You don't get any like specific focused 
how to be how to critically read images in education unless you mm. are an art historian and i i feel like that gap in education is part of why we're so much more impacted by images because i mean obviously like yes they are more immediate but like there's just i feel like something scary about them because people are not taught how to engage with them critically right right oh no i think yeah that's such a good point um and i was thinking especially with your background you bring so much to the table with this with the visual analysis um it's crazy to think about you know i'm in a phd in history program now and one of my specialties in the program is actually looking at the teaching of history and there's so much discussion about having students, whether they're graduating high school or graduating college, to come out with a set of critical inquiry skills, especially visual. And yet there is almost no pedagogical practice that's actually built in in terms of what you're actually doing in the classroom to give students those skills. I mean, we know that students are actively disencouraged from drawing as they start to graduate through elementary grades. Mm. And in terms of how we talk about literacy, you know, comics are still discussed as quote unquote stepping stones to literacy. And that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. um, and yet here we have these images having such an impact and we know, thank you so much, um, I think emerging research and education, I think especially Nick Susanis' um, 2016 book on flattening, which was based on his PhD dissertation in education, he talks so much about the visual complexity that we all know can exist in comic panels. And yet, I would definitely say there's still an educational bias against visual images, especially visual images with text. And I don't think that that's creating a climate that is beneficial right now. Um, yeah. So many of the librarians we've spoken to, they are still, unfortunately, their own islands. Like it tends to be one person at a school or library buying all the comics for their school or library. Mm -hmm there doesn't tend to be um, as much, I, it's starting to change, I do believe it is, but um, there aren't as much broad comics readership as we would like to see. Right. And so when a challenge comes, it, I think it creates an environment in which folks are much more likely to be like, oof, this is just a comic book, like we don't wanna worry about having the kind of scrutiny that might come to our door. We should just remove this from the shelf or move it to a different section. Yeah, there's still, right. I think that lingering sort of miasma of the old comics code right and like comics are mad yeah. bad dangerous to know right like they're gonna corrupt mm -hmm. the youth no matter what they are and especially if people are not being exposed to comics if they're not engaging with comics they all they really have to go on is that kind of uh like misconception right i mean that's that's what i think is kind of interesting because you know, this is not the first time that comics have been challenged or banned. I mean, it's 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 something that's been going on for decades, ever since comics existed. And you know, the 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 emergence of the comics code in the in the fifties was a direct reaction to that. But it still happens. Like I'm old enough to remember that was a big thing in the nineties. There's a lot of comic book shops being shut down because they were selling you know anime that was explicit. And it's like, well, a kid might mm. pick this up. And like, there's still it's amazing to me. There's still that perception of comics 
primarily being for kids. So therefore we have to protect the kids. Won't someone think of the children? God forbid they think of a comic that's like, <laughs> okay, but you know, has anything questionable in it. That's a really yeah. interesting nuanced like aspect of this. I think though, as someone whose job yeah. it was to actually like assign content warnings or like age ratings to all of that content. Um, there is some anime in there that I don't think anyone should be reading. Like there is an anime right. out there that right. if you are a fan, I think I should call 911. So <laughs> like um and 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 I really I, you know, like I'm being facetious, right? Like I understand that like these mm-hmm. a lot of these books are created in a culture that just has different norms about some of these things um but like at what point do and obviously shutting down shops is not the right thing to do but like no there is a point at which you do have to be able to make reasonable curatorial or like curricula decisions or even business decisions mm-hmm. um, where you may or may not carry something or maybe you like have it behind the curtain or like provide certain kind of content warnings or age ratings, which is it's like it's just it should be information for the reader. It shouldn't be like used to target certain groups or um, like in a bad faith way, but like, but it is used in a bad faith way. And so I sometimes feel like we are forced to accept everything because we don't want to, because the people who are doing these challenges are kind of like setting the terms of the discussion, which is doing us a disservice. Oh no. I, I think that's such a good point because it does feel, I think very, we're, I would say within librarianship and within schools, it sort of feels like we're reactionary instead of being more pro- proactive. So mm-hmm. um, a little tongue in cheek, we have called our toolkit for preparing for and addressing challenges, be prepared with sort of a, a, a nod to um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, sort of the, you know, sentiment of don't panic and be prepared and, you know, carry a towel. And um, I do think that if, folks have a better understanding of what they're up against, but also understanding the law a little bit better. Um, And material is not inherently obscene. A material has to be proven, quote unquote, obscene in a court of law, and it has to pass a community standards test. And community standards is, there's not, every community is different. Um, Not a lawyer, (laughs) but um, especially with a, a lot of comic censorship stuff. I mean, this has been something that's been debated going back to the 1940s. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things about my research is I'm really also trying to recontextualize the fact that, you know, most folks are quite familiar. If they're familiar with comic censorship, they know Wortham, they know the 1954 U.S. Senate hearings, um, the Senate subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquency in comic books. They may not know that for example, legislation was first introduced actually in Canada in 1949. Um, they introduced crime comics under the criminal code under the obscenity clause. And in this case, the Canadian example was even cited from lawmakers um, in New York in the early 1950s. You have similar legislation going on in the UK under the Harmful Publications Act, which was especially harmful publications and young persons. Um, act. You have similar uh, legislation going on in Australia, Belgium, elsewhere. So 
this was kind of like a much larger um, than I think people talk about. And it was very much um, a climate of fear. Uh, you also have like this is post World War Two. It's the Cold War. I mean, kids are kids are growing up, you know, um, doing drills in schools in which they're hiding under their desks in case, you know, nuclear bomb is dropped on them. So it, there's a lot of fear. Um, I would say not dissimilar from today, like coming out of and 100%, we are not in a post-COVID era, but we sort of are quote unquote, it's it's a very weird time to be in. And I think that such a pervasive climate of fear and also worry around children. And I think we have this precedent for sort of quote unquote acceptable censorship that if we're somehow protecting children, then it's acceptable, it, it's okay. And I think given the content that is being targeted, let's say books like Gender Queer or Flamer, it's incredibly frustrating because we talk about misinformation campaigns and, you know, the American Pediatric Association has embraced gender affirming care for years mm -hmm. and that is a medical best practice. And so having a book like Gender Queer on the shelf you know, for adults, or there's other books for younger ages. Um, Corey Silverberg and Fiona Smith's Sex is a Funny Word is a great book for elementary kids about sexual and gender identity and nonfiction award-winning book. And that book has also been targeted. And it's frustrating because this is like a book that is illustrating in a way that's super relatable for kids and their families and is based on medical best practice. And yet, um, people are frustrated by it. And I think because of the visual medium, I mean, it's impactful right. for a reason. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. I was tasked at my old job to create a set of visual criteria for determining whether or not an image ha has the intention to arouse. Whoa. No. <laughs> intention <laughs> Which to like, arouse. first of all, I hate that phrase because I neither know wow. nor care what the artist's intention is. And I think that it, right. that's impossible to know. Um, I think that it makes more sense to begin at the, like the impact of the image, right? Like that, I think you can measure more um, objectively. But in any case, some of the criteria that I came up with was like, was things like, um, you know, I kind of drew on film theory. What what are the angles? What's the camera angle? Where are you mm -hmm. as the viewer being positioned in the scene? Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of Avatar books, like the Jungle Fever series, where mm. um, or Jungle Fever, no Jungle something. God, there's so many of those horrible books. Um, anyway, um, where in the sex scenes, the the viewer is literally drawn in as the man in the act, oh. hmm. you know? Oh. So that was kind of my, my sort of like a uh, cornerstone of, is this intended to arouse? Like, where are you, the viewer being positioned? Um, other, mm -hmm. other things are like, is there verisimilitude in the drawing or is it like a more sketchy uh, rendering? Is, is there like shading is, is the shading really realistic is are the colors really realistic or is it just kind of like outlines of of people like in a more cartoony style and and it's funny because i think that in, in one way people would be like if it's cartoony then they're trying to appeal to kids but i actually feel like that sort of mm -hmm. remove that, that that removes the erotic aspect because then it's right. just like 
a thing being depicted and not like with intention to arouse necessarily. Hmm. I know. I, I, I know. It's a terrible <laughs> phrase. <laughs> it's terrible. It honestly... It honestly sounds like a Spinal Tap song intended to arouse. So. <laughs> but it's honestly like it is it, it, it's something that I think a lot of uh, people think is possible to discern and is in fact ne- necessary right. yep. to evaluate material as um needing censorship in some way or like special you know what I mean like people really genuinely believe I think that that's what they should be focusing on here instead of the impact Mm. and like amy you mentioned like the community uh i forget the phrase that you used exactly community standard community standard thank you Yeah. yeah like we can't really know what the artist intended but i think that we can measure the the community impact and the the what is the community standard because something in one place may be completely obscene and taboo and not in another place And Mm -hmm. so you just kind of, I don't know, like I'm also, cultural relativity is hard. It's really tough. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I think you see that with, you know, video game parameters, like how if a game is released in certain countries, they'll have to do, you know, some small alterations based on what is acceptable in that country versus another country. So there's definitely precedent. And it's also, it's something that's so, A, hard to determine, but it's something that also should be kind of a moving target like our communities change and also to have I think what we're seeing now is a lot of these groups um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them more airtime than they have um, by naming them Um, but they're very well organized and so a lot of the things that we're seeing is there are you know lists of books being distributed bulleted talking points and one of the best ways I think to push back against that is to be similarly organized and say, you know, um, we actually just because one person has an issue, that doesn't mean that all parents have an issue or if one reader has an issue, that's not all readers. Um, so one of the biggest things we've been recommending for schools and libraries is to go back to their collection development policies and also their challenge policies. So your collection development policy is basically why you buy what you buy and your justification for it. What we have realized is a lot of libraries haven't updated their collection development policy in more than 10 years. Hmm. So not only do they not um, reflect buying different formats like comics that you might buy maybe from your comic book store, but also you're buying maybe in digital formats. So you really need to make sure that that is a document you update every three to five years, ideally. And then you should have a challenge policy so that if somebody comes to your school or library and says, I have a problem with this, you you need to be like, hey, here's our challenge policy. (laughs) Please fill this out. And, you know, the first question should be, have you read this? Yes. Have you read this in its entirety? Yes. (laughs) Um, Why specifically do you have an issue with this? And to really, you know, give reasons for it. Um, There are tools out there. I mean, common sense media has been around for decades and it's sort of community assessments. And I would say they definitely err on the more conservative sides. And I mean, common sense media has like a good rating for something like genderqueer or new kid. And yet you have folks going against um, these very awarded titles that have, you know, starred reviews across a variety of um, reviewing media. And I think the onus should really be on the individual coming forward with this challenge. And what we are finding is that most of these challenges 
you know, they're, they're not starting, especially from the young readers. Uh, you have some states in which we have teenagers awesomely pushing back and being like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, this is not what we're looking for. Like we, our First Amendment right is also important. I mean, if we go a little bit larger internationally in the UN Declaration for the Rights of the Child, I mean, the right for children to have within public and school libraries, a spectrum of media is written right in there to the rights of the child. And I think we're seeing this very much a push and pull around, you know, perceived community rights over individual rights, even like we have such a, I think people love to articulate freedom of speech. And yet here we are taking, you know, people who are under 18 and saying they don't have the right to choose for themselves or their families don't have a right to choose for themselves what's appropriate. And that's a big problem. Mm You know, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's freedom of speech as long as I control who has the freedom, right? That's yeah. <laughs> it's tough though because I, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about how yeah. like uh, it's they've made it impossible to have a nuanced conversation about this because you know then they if they try to equate, for example, like having allowing marginalized people to create autobiographical works to their right to disseminate propaganda or misinformation right and so they like start throwing all these straw man arguments out to really like make it impossible to have good faith nuanced discussions about this because you know it's like the the paradox of tolerance is i i guess too complex for some people to understand or you know like they're just being intellectually dishonest about it and so um it, i i we i think that you're absolutely right that we have to kind of take a leaf from their book and organize the way that they organize, especially on mm-hmm. community levels. Like they are taking over school boards, they are taking over like, um, you know, local government, and that's how they're building momentum for a lot of this. And so that's something I think that that people need to look at if they want to push back against these challenges. But I also think that we just need to figure out a way to shut down those bad faith straw man arguments because like there just isn't a good way to solve this problem without getting into the nuance. Mm-hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. I think happily there's at least some examples we can point to, um, you know, in Virginia, the ACLU um, uh, along with Oni press and Michael big yourself was named in an obscenity lawsuit. And, uh, you know, we had some private citizens who actually wanted to not only bar genderqueer from being on school and live public library shelves, but wanted to bar it from private sale in the state of Virginia. And wow. yeah, I know the judge was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's um, that's so insane. I, I'm sorry. That's has anybody read this book? Has anybody read this book? I guess not. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, it, it, it's such a good point. Like we're even seeing. Um, there's it's a YA book um, called Lawn Boy. I'm sorry, I don't have the author's name at the top of my head. But um, what's been interesting too with a lot of these circulated talking points is they're actually conflating these two books. So gender career by Maya Kobe lawn boy, which is a text only YA book and lawn boy has some scenes um, of consensual um, sexual interactions between sort of a teenager and a younger adult. And they're saying that gender queer has these things. And I'm like, no, I mean, Michael <laughs> spends a lot of time in gender career talking about discovering 
your asexual identity. I'm like, have you read gender? <laughs> this is not about two men having sex. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, I want people to have discussions like that to be like, actually, genderqueer does not. Have <laughs> <laughs> Can you point to me where two men are having sex in genderqueer? Um <laughs> Show me in the comic book where this is happening. <laughs> yeah. Is the yeah. sex in the room with us right now? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. also it's like, oh, uh, I'm sorry, but is is everything in our entire society not geared towards grooming young women to accept sexual attention from older men? Like, is that not a thing that right. we all live with? No, entirely. Well, and this is, I think, such a frustration seeing books like um, Sex is a Funny Word that I mentioned earlier by Corey Silverberg and Fiona Smith. I mean, this is a book, um, Corey Silverberg um, and Fiona Smith are both Canadian. It won a nonfiction award in Canada, but it's published widely throughout North America. And it talks about consent, which is such an important thing to give kiddos the visuals and the text and the tools to talk about. And one of the best things about this book is it's a book meant for kiddos to read with their people and like talk about consent, whether it's hugging or touching or any range of consent. And I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is actually a super important book. And yet this is a book that's being pulled off the shelf. Um, so I think, yeah, where what we are seeing is, a lot of, you know, parents and communities pushing back and saying, you know, one or two parents does not speak for the community. Like most of our libraries, they don't have one community too. They have communities and those are always changing. And I think as folks are starting to get more involved, we are seeing, you know, people pushing back. We are hearing, you know, about libraries fighting challenges and winning. It's just, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in putting together the work that the committee has done or even the webinar series um, that we're finishing up on Wednesday, we've had trouble having panelists come on the webinar series because a lot of folks have fought challenges at their library, but a great personal cost. And I don't think that's talked about mm, enough. Yeah. Huh. Um, and yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think people need to understand that it, this is not in a vacuum. Um, this is happening all throughout. Um, I actually did, this is only my second podcast taping in a few years, um, which is crazy, but also as we talked about past few years have been weird. Um, but I, I had done a podcast taping in the fall and it was for, we now have Australian colleagues. Um, so the Australia Library Association, they started their own graphic novel and comics roundtable a few years ago. And they're amazing. Um, they're at Alia Graphic, which is the Australian Library and Information Association. And I did a podcast taping for them in the fall because they wanted to hear a little bit about the work of the committee and just the general climate of bans and challenges in North America. And they've now had challenges in Australia. And so it, it's happening. Um, whether or not people are talking about it widely, like it is happening at school boards and in libraries. And I think the more prepared people are to meet the challenge, the much better we can face this. So. Yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah, we're we're uh, don't have a ton of time to really unpack everything, and it's a big topic. But I guess what's really frustrating is being a comic fan. It feels like you're kind of powerless in the face of this. You're dealing with governments, you're dealing with local organizations, and it's like it's almost like very frustrating because as a comic fan, you want to you want to proselytize and say like, no, these are great comics. You just need to read them, but your voice gets drowned out. So it's like it's very frustrating. Is there anything? very briefly, like maybe as fans you think would be beneficial to kind of combat this, even on a very small level? 
Oh, I think that is, is such a great question. And um, every time we do these kind of like interviews or podcasts, people are like, wow, it's, the situation is dire. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, 100%. But <laughs> mm. um, I think, you know, I get down to even just the work we all have been doing for, you know, 10 plus years, which is to really make more people be comic fans and advocates. Right. So, you know, Kate Beaton's Ducks, which I didn't talk about because I just finished it, but it's amazing, yes. um, you know, and oh my gosh, it actually just won Canada Reads. So this is competition in Canada in which um, people sort of pick their favorite book and then argue for the book on a national platform. Wow. And it won. And it's the first graphic novel to nice. win. And I think it's important to talk about that or Jerry Craft's new kid winning the Newberry. Mm -hmm. um, there, these are, these are not just great comics. They're also books that have won a number of awards. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maya Kobe's genderqueer, when he was on the panel with us last year, I, I was just so struck by the fact that your book has won so many awards and yet we're having this conversation. Yeah. And I think if you go back a few more years, you know, Mariko and Jillian's Tamaki's this one summer, right. it yeah. won so many awards and it was the most banned and challenged book of 2016. Hmm. So <laughs> this, it's kind of not without precedent, but these are award-winning books. And I think the advocacy and talking about it is really important mm -hmm. because I don't think that everyone a realizes that it's happening or even happening to the extent that it is so even if you don't have kiddos in local schools like get involved um, you know talk about how the freedom to read is a right that everybody has and you know that goes hand in hand with freedom of speech and the rights of the child and like this should be something we talk about in schools and that we are lending our support to um you know support your local state chapters of the aclu um you know support your local libraries and schools and i think with more people standing up in many ways large and small we can win this fight well, there's a positive note to end on, I guess, right? Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's, <laughs> that is the perfect yeah. way to end this. Um, I, you know, Amy, this is this has been fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm. There's so much more I think we probably could talk about, so we will have to have you back hopefully sooner than the last time we had you on here. Um, but I would <laughs> yes. love to talk more about this. Love to hear what else you're reading and all that other stuff. So thank you so much for like insight and folks, you've heard it. Like, get involved. Be like, go help out your local library if you can. Um, sounds like great advice. Um, overall, whether it's for helping comic books or not. Um, but yeah, I guess to, to wrap things up, I guess, Amy, where can folks find you on the internet if they want to just say hello or where can they look for your work, I guess, in the future? 100%. So I'm definitely a more sporadic tweeter mm -hmm. these days, but you can find me on Twitter at Librarylandia. And the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable, we are across social media platforms at LibComics, so L-I-B-C-O-M-I-X, and we are also on Discord now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to get all of those links in the show notes for folks who want to get involved and say hello. Um, I guess to, to wrap things up, I mean, Tia Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Amy, thank you so much for yours. Um, next week's show is going to be me and Nick and Kate. We're going to be talking about the wildest manga that Nick and Kate can find. Um, I or Kate Lamphrey, I should say. They read a lot of the out there manga, um, hopefully stuff that Tia would not want to get off of their, a platform on the internet, but um, stuff that is 
out there, a little bit different than just your typical Shonen stuff. So I'm excited to see what they throw my way so I can give just a blind assessment on that. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. Xander is there to just look you in the eye and reassure you that everything's going to be okay. He edits the shows. Thank you so much. I want to say again, thank you to Tia and Paul. Thank you, Amy, once more for being on the show. And until next time, comics are good and so are you. Okay.